Chapter Twenty One of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Twenty One. Esther's motive in seeking Mary. My rest is gone, my heart is sore, peace find I never and never more. Margaret's Song in Faust I must go back a little to explain the motives which caused Esther to seek an interview with her niece. The murder had been committed early on Thursday night, and between then and the dawn of the following day there was ample time for the news to spread far and wide among all those whose duty or whose want, or whose errors, caused them to be abroad in the streets of Manchester. Among those who listened to the tale of violence was Esther. A craving desire to know more took possession of her mind. Far away as she was from Turner Street, she immediately set off to the scene of the murder, which was faintly lighted by the grey dawn as she reached the spot. It was so quiet and still that she could hardly believe it to be the place. The only vestige of any scuffle or violence was a trail in the dust, as if somebody had been lying there, and then been raised by extraneous force. The little birds were beginning to hop and twitter in the leafless hedge, making the only sound that was near and distinct. She crossed into the field where she guessed the murderer to have stood. It was easy of access, for the worn, stunted hawthorn edge had many gaps in it. The night smell of the bruised grass came up from under her feet, as she went towards the sawpit and carpenter's shed, which, as I have said before, were in a corner of the field near the road, and where one of her informants had told her it was supposed by the police that the murderer had lurked while waiting for his victim. There was no sign, however, that any one had been about the place. If the grass had been bruised or bent where he had trod, it had had enough of the elasticity of life to raise itself under the dewy influences of night. She hushed her breath in involuntary awe, but nothing else told of the violent deed by which a fellow creature had passed away. She stood still for a minute, imagining to herself the position of the parties, guided by the only circumstance which afforded any evidence, the trailing mark on the dust in the road. Suddenly, it was before the sun had risen above the horizon, she became aware of something white in the hedge. All other colors wore the same murky hue, though the forms of objects were perfectly distinct. What was it? It could not be a flower. That the time of year made clear. A frozen lump of snow, lingering late in one of the gnarled tufts of the hedge? She stepped forward to examine. It proved to be a little piece of stiff writing paper compressed into a round shape. She understood it instantly. It was the paper that had served as a wadding for the murderer's gun. Then she had been standing just where the murderer must have been but a few hours before. Probably, as the rumor had spread through the town reaching her ears, one of the poor maddened turnouts, who hung about everywhere with black, fierce looks, as if contemplating some deed of violence. Her sympathy was all with them, for she had known what they suffered. And besides this, there was her own individual dislike of Mr. Carson and dread of him for Mary's sake. Yet, poor Mary! Death was a terrible, though sure, remedy for the evil Esther had dreaded for her, and how would she stand the shock, loving as her aunt believed her to do? Poor Mary! Who would comfort her? 
Esther's thoughts began to picture her sorrow, her despair, when the news of her lover's death should reach her, and she longed to tell her there might have been a keener grief yet had he lived. Bright beautiful came the slanting rays of the morning sun. It was time for such as she to hide themselves, with the other obscene things of night, from the glorious light of day which was only for the happy. So she turned her steps towards town, still holding the paper. But in getting over the hedge it encumbered her to hold it in her clasped hand, and she threw it down. She passed on a few steps, her thoughts still of Mary, till the idea crossed her mind, could it, blank as it appeared to be, give any clue to the murderer? As I said before, her sympathies were all on that side, so she turned back and picked it up. And then, feeling as if in some measure an accessory, she hid it unexamined in her hand, and hastily passed out of the street at the opposite end to that by which she had entered it. And what do you think she felt when, having walked some distance from the spot, she dared to open the crushed paper, and saw written on it Mary Barton's name, and not only that, but the street in which she lived? True, a letter or two was torn off, but nevertheless, there was the name clear to be recognized. And, oh, what a terrible thought flashed into her mind! Or was it only fancy? But it looked very like the writing, which she had once known well, the writing of Jem Wilson, who, when she lived at her brother-in-law's, and he was a near neighbor, had often been employed by her to write her letters to people, to whom she was ashamed of sending her own misspelled scrawl. She remembered the wonderful flourishes she had so much admired in those days, while she sat by dictating, and Jem, in all the pride of newly acquired penmanship, used to dazzle her eyes by extraordinary graces and twirls. If it were his, oh, perhaps it was merely that her head was running so on Mary, that she was associating every trifle with her, as if only one person wrote in that flourishing, meandering style. It was enough to fill her mind to think from what she might have saved Mary by securing the paper. She would look at it just once more, and see if some very dense and stupid policeman could have mistaken the name, or if Mary would certainly have been dragged into notice in the affair. No, no one could have mistaken the re Barton, and it was Jem's handwriting. Oh, if it was so, she understood it all, and she had been the cause. With her violent and unregulated nature, rendered morbid by the course of life she led, and her consciousness of her degradation, she cursed herself for the interference which she believed had led to this, for the information and the warning she had given to Jem which had roused him to this murderous action. How could she, the abandoned and polluted outcast, ever have dared to hope for a blessing, even on her efforts to do good? The black curse of heaven rested on all her doings, were they for good or for evil. Poor diseased mind, and there were none to minister to thee. So she wandered about, too restless to take her usual heavy morning sleep, up and down the streets, greedily listening to every word of the passers-by, and loitering near each group of talkers, anxious to scrape together every morsel of information, or conjecture, or suspicion, though without possessing any definite purpose in all this and ever and always she clenched the scrap of paper which might betray so much, until her nails had deeply indented the palm of her hand. So fearful was she in her nervous dread, lest unawares she should let it drop. Towards the middle of the day she could no longer evade the body's craving want of rest and refreshment, but the rest was taken in a spirit vault, and the refreshment was a glass of gin. 
Then she started up from the stupor she had taken for repose, and suddenly driven before the gusty impulses of her mind, she pushed her way to the place where, at that very time, the police were bringing the information they had gathered with regard to the all-engrossing murder. She listened with painful acuteness of comprehension to dropped words and unconnected sentences, the meaning of which became clearer and yet more clear to her. Jem was suspected. Jem was ascertained to be the murderer. She saw him, although he, absorbed in deep, sad thought, saw her not. She saw him brought handcuffed and guarded out of the coach. She saw him enter the station. She gasped for breath till he came out, still handcuffed and still guarded, to be conveyed to the new bailey. He was the only one who had spoken to her with hope that she might win her way back to virtue. His words had lingered in her heart with a sort of call to heaven, like distant Sabbath bells, although in her despair she had turned away from his voice. He was the only one who had spoken to her kindly. The murder, shocking though it was, was an absent, abstract thing, on which her thoughts could not and would not dwell. All that was present in her mind was Jem's danger and his kindness. Then Mary came to remembrance. Esther wondered till she was sick of wondering in what way she was taking the affair. In some manner it would be a terrible blow for the poor motherless girl, with her dreadful father, too, who was to Esther a sort of accusing angel. She set off towards the court where Mary lived, to pick up what she could there of information. But she was ashamed to enter in where once she had been innocent, and hung about the neighboring streets, not daring to question. So she learned but little, nothing in fact, but the knowledge of John Barton's absence from home. She went up a dark entry to rest her weary limbs on a doorstep and think. Her elbows on her knees, her face hidden in her hands, she tried to gather together and arrange her thoughts. But still every now and then she opened her hand to see if the paper were yet there. She got up at last. She had formed a plan, and had a course of action to look forward to that would satisfy one craving desire at least. The time was long gone by when there was much wisdom or consistency in her projects. It was getting late, and that was so much the better. She went to a pawn-shop and took off her finery in a back room. She was known by the people and had a character for honesty, so she had no very great difficulty in inducing them to let her have a suit of outer clothes, befitting the wife of a working man, a black silk bonnet, a printed gown, a plaid shawl, dirty and rather warm to be sure, but which had a sort of sanctity to the eyes of the street-walker as being the appropriate garb of that happy class to which she could never, never more belong. She looked at herself in the little glass which hung against the wall, and sadly shaking her head thought how easy were the duties of that Eden of innocence from which she was shut out. How she would work and toil and starve and die, if necessary, for a husband, a home, for children. But that thought she could not bear. A little form rose up, stern in its innocence, from the witch's cauldron of her imagination, and she rushed into action again. You know now how she came to stand by the threshold of Mary's door, waiting, trembling, until the latch was lifted and her niece, with words that spoke of such desolation among the living, fell into her arms. She had felt as if some holy spell would prevent her, even as the unholy Lady Geraldine was prevented in the abode of Christabel from crossing the threshold of that home of her early innocence, and she had meant to wait for an invitation. But Mary's helpless action did away with all reluctant feeling. 
and she bore her dragged her to her seat and looked on her bewildered eyes as puzzled with the likeness which was not identity she gazed on her aunt's features in pursuance of her plan esther meant to assume the manners and character as she had done the dress of a mechanic's wife but then to account for her long absence and her long silence towards all that ought to have been dear to her it was necessary that she should put on an indifference far distant from her heart which was loving and yearning in spite of all its faults and perhaps she overacted her part for certainly mary felt a kind of repugnance to the changed and altered aunt who so suddenly reappeared on the scene and it would have cut esther to the very core could she have known how her little darling of former days was feeling towards her you don't remember me i see mary she began it's a long while since i left you all to be sure and i many a time thought of coming to see you and and your father but i live so far off and am always so busy i cannot do just what i wish you recollect aunt esther don't you mary are you aunt hetty asked mary faintly still looking at the face which was so different from the old recollections of her aunt's fresh dazzling beauty yes i am aunt hetty oh it's so long since i heard that name sighing forth the thoughts it suggested then recovering herself and striving after the hard character she wished to assume she continued and to-day i heard a friend of yours and of mine too long ago was in trouble and i guessed you would be in sorrow so i thought i would just step this far and see you mary's tears flowed afresh but she had no desire to open her heart to her strangely found aunt who had by her own confession kept aloof from and neglecting them for so many years yet she tried to feel grateful for kindness however late from any one and wished to be civil moreover she had a strong disinclination to speak on the terrible subject uppermost in her mind so after a pause she said thank you i dare say you mean very kind have you had a long walk i'm so sorry she said rising with a sudden thought which was as suddenly checked by recollection but i've nothing to eat in the house and i'm sure you must be hungry after your walk for mary concluded that certainly her aunt's residence must be far away on the other side of the town out of sight or hearing but after all she did not think much about her her heart was so aching full of other things that all besides seemed like a dream she received feelings and impressions from her conversation with her aunt but did not could not put them together or think or argue about them and esther how scanty had been her food for days and weeks her thinly covered bones and pale lips might tell but her words should never reveal so with a little unreal laugh she replied oh mary my dear don't talk about eating we've the best of everything and plenty of it for my husband is in good work i'd such a supper before i came out i couldn't touch a morsel if you had it her words shot a strange pang through mary's heart she had always remembered her aunt's loving and unselfish disposition how was it changed if living in plenty she had never thought it worth while to ask after her relations who were all but starving she shut up her heart instinctively against her aunt and all the time poor esther was swallowing her sobs and overacting her part and controlling herself more than she had done for many a long day in order that her niece might not be shocked and revolted by the knowledge of what her aunt had become a prostitute an outcast she had longed to open her wretched wretched heart so hopeless so abandoned by all living things to one who had loved her once 
and yet she refrained from dread of the averted eye the altered voice the internal loathing which she feared such disclosure might create she would go straight to the subject of the day she could not tarry long for she felt unable to support the character she had assumed for any length of time they sat by the little round table facing each other the candle was placed right between them and esther moved it in order to have a clearer view of mary's face so that she might read her emotions and ascertain her interests then she began it's a bad business i'm afraid this of mr carson's murder mary winced a little i hear jem wilson is taken up for it mary covered her eyes with her hands as if to shade them from the light and esther herself less accustomed to self-command was getting too much agitated for calm observation of another i was taking a walk near turner street and i went to see the spot continued esther and as luck would have it i spied this bit of paper in the hedge producing the precious piece still folded in her hand it has been used as wadding for the gun i reckon indeed that's clear enough from the shape it's crammed into i was sorry for the murderer whoever he might be i didn't then know of jem's being suspected and i thought i would never leave a thing about as might help ever so little to convict him the police are so cute about straws so i carried it a little way and then i opened it and saw your name mary mary took her hands away from her eyes and looked with surprise at her aunt's face as she uttered these words she was kind after all for was she not saving her from being summoned and from being questioned and examined a thing to be dreaded above all others as she felt sure that her unwilling answers frame them how she might would add to the suspicions against jem her aunt was indeed kind to think of what would spare her this esther went on without noticing mary's look the very action of speaking was so painful to her and so much interrupted by the hard raking little cough which had been her constant annoyance for months that she was too much engrossed by the physical difficulty of utterance to be a very close observer there could be no mistake if they had found it look at your name together with the very name of this court and in jem's handwriting too or i'm much mistaken look mary and now she did watch her mary took the paper and flattened it then suddenly stood stiff up with irrepressible movement as if petrified by some horror abruptly disclosed her face strung and rigid her lips compressed tight to keep down some rising exclamation she dropped on her seat as suddenly as if the braced muscles had in an instant given way but she spoke no word it is his handwriting isn't it asked esther though mary's manner was almost confirmation enough you will not tell you never will tell demanded mary in a tone so sternly earnest as almost to be threatening nay mary said esther rather reproachfully i am not so bad as that oh mary you cannot think i would do that whatever i may be the tears sprang to her eyes at the idea that she was suspected of being one who would help to inform against an old friend mary caught her sad and upbraiding look no i know you would not tell aunt i don't know what i say i am so shocked but say you will not tell do no indeed i willn't tell come what may mary sat still looking at the writing and turning the paper round with careful examination trying to hope but her very fears belying her hopes 
"'I thought you cared for the young man that's murdered,' observed Esther, half aloud, but feeling that she could not mistake the strange interest in the suspected murderer, implied by Mary's eagerness to screen him from anything which might strengthen suspicion against him. She had come, desirous to know the extent of Mary's grief for Mr. Carson, and glad of the excuse afforded her by the important scrap of paper. Her remark about its being Jem's handwriting she had, with this view of ascertaining Mary's state of feeling, felt to be most imprudent the instant after she had uttered it, but Mary's anxiety that she should not tell was too great and too decided, to leave a doubt as to her interest for Jem. She grew more and more bewildered, and her dizzy head refused to reason. Mary never spoke. She held the bit of paper firmly, determined to retain possession of it, come what might, and anxious and impatient for her aunt to go. As she sat, her face bore a likeness to Esther's dead child. "'You are so like my little girl, Mary,' said Esther, aware of the one subject on which she could get no satisfaction, and recurring with full heart to the thought of the dead. Mary looked up. Her aunt had children, then. That was all the idea she received. No faint imagination of the love and the woe of that poor creature crossed her mind or she would have taken her, all guilty and erring, to her bosom, and tried to bind up the broken heart. No, it was not to be. Her aunt had children then, and she was on the point of putting some question about them, but before it could be spoken another thought turned it aside, and she went back to her task of unraveling the mystery of the paper and the handwriting. Oh, how she wished her aunt would go! As if, according to the believers in mesmerism, the intenseness of her wish gave her power over another. Although the wish was unexpressed, Esther felt herself unwelcome, and that her absence was desired. She felt this some time before she could summon up resolution to go. She was so much disappointed in this longed-for, dreaded interview with Mary. She had wished to impose upon her with her tale of married respectability, and yet she had yearned and craved for sympathy in her real lot. And she had imposed upon her well— she should perhaps be glad of it afterwards, but her desolation of hope seemed for the time redoubled, and she must leave the old dwelling-place, whose very walls and flags, dingy and sordid as they were, had a charm for her. Must leave the abode of poverty, for the more terrible abodes of vice. She must, she would go. Well, good night, Mary. That bit of paper is safe enough with you, I see. But you made me promise I would not tell about it, and you must promise me to destroy it before you sleep. I promise, said Mary hoarsely, but firmly. Then you are going? Yes, not if you wish me to stay, not if I could be of any comfort to you, Mary, catching at some glimmering hope. Oh, no, said Mary, anxious to be alone. Your husband will be wondering where you are. Some day you must tell me all about yourself. I forget what your name is. Ferguson said Esther sadly. Mrs. Ferguson, repeated Mary, half unconsciously. And where did you say you lived? I never did say, muttered Esther, then aloud, in Angel's Meadow, 145 Nicholas Street. 145 Nicholas Street, Angel Meadow. I shall remember. As Esther drew her shawl around her and prepared to depart, a thought crossed Mary's mind that she had been cold and hard in her manner towards one, who had certainly meant to act kindly in bringing her the paper, that dread, terrible piece of paper, and thus saving her from, she could not rightly think how much or how little she was spared. 
so desirous of making up for her previous indifferent manner she advanced to kiss her aunt before departure but to her surprise her aunt pushed her off with a frantic kind of gesture and saying the words not me you must never kiss me you she rushed into the outer darkness of the street and there wept long and bitterly End of chapter 21 Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin